Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. And fuck us all anyway for the limber dick cocksuckers we are. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I saw Hamilton a few weeks ago, so now I fully understand hip-hop in America. <laughs> when are you finally going to let me start composing beats for the break? I just took a Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> you could compose beats all you want, but, you know, I don't know if people know, people wouldn't know this, but every time we record, we have to line up our audio tracks and the way that we do it is we do a little count and we clap. And so that way it's easy to see where our recordings start and line them up. And um, and let's just say that for about a year, <laughs> the claps, <laughs> we never knew what we were going to get with Tamler. <laughs> well, that's but, that's because I'm Jewish. And... <laughs> but I but... think you'd be I think I think that you've improved sufficiently. So I'd be happy to put a, a, one of your beats. Have you that. seen Hamilton? No. No. In some ways, that's kind of irresponsible. You know nothing about rap. There's an interesting discussion to be had. I was talking to somebody about what it is about Hamilton that makes me not consider it rap, which which is not to say that it's not good art. Like, I think it's great art. I think, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda is... is Manuel. Ma- Manuel. <laughs> <laughs> Manuel. That's right. Um, thanks for correcting my Spanish. Um, uh, is brilliant, but there is there is something about calling it hip hop that rubs me the wrong way. And of course, I'm not the fucking arbiter of what hip hop is or what's not. But I think that it's very similar to, and some of our listeners wanted us to talk about this. It's very similar to the reason why rappers get dissed for having ghostwriters. Which is that when you say when you're a rapper and you're rapping as an you're a hip hop artist, saying other people's words seems to really violate some core feature of what hip hop is. And so reciting the words that somebody has composed seems like it takes it away from what hip hop is. But what so, about when he does it? I mean, he was the star of the first uh, yeah. Broadway. Yeah, yeah, no, no. When he when he does it, like I have zero problem thinking. So that it that's just hip-hop. transforms from hip hop to not hip hop, like the moment. Yeah, somebody but weirdly, it's not. It's it's rap in both cases, right. but it is akin to to just rapping somebody else's uh, somebody else's stuff. And I think it's just because rap's so 
has so maybe it's like poetry in this sense that it's so much supposed to be an expression of your of your identity and your yeah. thoughts that that reciting other people's words seems uh, seems like a violation hence the the accusations that drake has received for having other people write his songs doesn't that happen a lot that people write other people's yeah but it's it's it is sort of like in the academic book writing world um it's a secret so they are ghost writers so yeah. they they don't get credited and when you find out that somebody else somebody else wrote you know what you thought was a book from whatever tamler summers but you, i know you wrote your own book um <laughs> you, you would I? be like wait what the fuck Right, like, well, yeah, and it always seems to come out when they start beefing. Then yeah. the accusations of that fly. But is it true that like that Fifty Cent yeah. wrote uh, "Hate It or Love It" for the game? For, you know, he, I don't know for sure. He definitely would write hooks. He maybe wrote, but but the game is, is so talented uh, that yeah. that I I. I can't imagine that he wrote the whole song for him. No, and part of his identity is that he never does that, right? Yeah, yeah. The thing is, you know, there are some people who get away with it for other reasons. So Dr. Dre never writes his own raps. Right. Um, and, but it's because he's the producer of all the music that, that he gets away with it. Um, um, and early on in hip-hop, people used to, you know, there was, it was no secret that, like, Big Daddy Kane wrote wrote songs for Bismarcky. Um, and I don't know what the difference is. I think as rap evolved, it became much more an expression of of your personal feelings from go, going from sort of like just party, like a hip hop, a hippie, that, that stuff, um, to being much more an expression of your, of your persona. Um, so you can, like somebody can say Nas lied about his life experiences. And that's not nearly as damning as saying somebody else wrote the words that Nas recited, yeah. <laughs> like, which is, I think, weird. Because everybody lies to some extent. Well, yes. Yeah. About. Uh, yeah. It would be weird if they didn't. But sometimes they're so honest that they caught get caught in a crime. Yeah. <laughs> it actually happened where they like detail the the specifics about the crime that they committed and the police use it as evidence that's real uh, that's yeah. straight up yeah and I, I think this is why um why rappers get get in trouble for violent lyrics and sometimes rappers have said like why doesn't people why don't people get mad at arnold schwarzenegger for killing like a bunch of people in his movies you know i'm an entertainer <laughs> you can't have it both ways yeah. you're either being authentic <laughs> And talking about killing motherfuckers, <laughs> or you're lying. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've seen a lot. A lot of rappers sort of say, "Look, this is art. We are rapping about yeah. like real people and real, not necessarily my experience." But yeah, sometimes, and especially when you're going after somebody else, it is about how you've lived the life and they haven't. Right. Right. And uh, and da it is the most damning to say that somebody has written your raps for you. Um, kind kind of like uh, four beers, two <laughs> psychologists or whatever uh, <laughs> about drinking. Like they're fronting <laughs> about drinking, but like they're not real G's. I think they're being completely honest. They're drinking two. 
Like, unless they're not drinking those beers. Well, apparently, I didn't listen to it, but apparently Yoel didn't finish his second beer. Oh, well, then, yeah. Um, then then, then it might as well be, <laughs> you know. Then I want him to pre-register his fucking beers, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I want him to report the entirety of his beer drinking. Even if there was a failed beer drinking, it should be it should be reported. Yeah, um, he's so. massaging the data. <laughs> uh, I want them to report the size. You know, was this like a yard? <laughs> like, is it, was it a pint? Right, a exactly. <laughs> and what the alcohol level is like? Is he drinking two cores? Like, I mean, I'm is sure he, they say is it. he drinking it on an empty stomach? Right, you know, like <laughs> speaking of. The ongoing fraudulence of social psychology and social <laughs> psychologists. Damn. Actually, I should say that on the main segment of today's episode, we are going to have Matthew Nock, a researcher on the topic of suicide and self-harm, and we will talk about that. But first... Well, I want to talk about two things. So there was this big kind of an expose about the Stanford prison experiment that came out in this blog post that was on Medium. And then that was based on listening to recordings from the experiment that I guess have been available for a while. But for some reason, this was the first time they were brought to light in in such a highly publicized way. And I know also Jay Von Bavel on Twitter said that he listened separately to the blog post. He listened to all the tapes mm-hmm. and was somewhat shocked to find out what they contained. And it really casts a shadow on the Stanford prison experiment as being not at all how it's been portrayed both by Zimbardo and by others who by have else, taught right? taught it and... Uh, presented it. I know I'm one of those people. I've I teach this in my intro class, my interview with Zimbardo every single year. The students connect with it. And there's two parts of it that I happen to kind of emphasize the one because Zimbardo emphasized them to me in the interview. One that the prisoners just kind of forgot that they were free to leave anytime they wanted that they were so enveloped in the role of being prisoner that they forgot that he had no legal right to keep them and they could walk out anytime they want. Um, So that was, according to the recordings and according to the documents, never made clear to the prisoners. At first, there was some idea of like having a safe word, which is kind of funny, (laughs) like, but which they never used. And so they weren't allowed to be... Uh, liberated because they forgot the safe word, and then and then further inquiries seem to reveal that there wasn't even that. Like a right, safe nothing phrase. in the original documentation revealed yeah. it, and yeah. and moreover, people were asking to be released. Yeah, um, yeah, and we're not there's, allowed to. Right, there's another. The other part of this do- doesn't come from the tapes; it comes from the uh, sort of reveal that um, that the mental breakdown of one of the particular prisoners that is, you know, and whatever the original video is um, that, that Zimbardo put together of it, which I also show to my class. Yeah. We'll talk about the teaching of it in a second, but um, yeah. uh, that he was just like acting the whole time, that it wasn't a real breakdown. And he's insisted on this 
for quite some time and apparently early on enough that he was he was asking Zimbardo to stop uh, to stop asking him to be part of the like the media and hmm. like all of the media um that that he was just he's he says like not only was i acting i was like poorly acting like listen to it like i'm not i just was doing what i thought he he would want for this experiment um i don't know if i agree that he was poorly <laughs> acting i mean i bought it <laughs> yeah no i bought it too but but then oh and then the other one that uh, is something I emphasize in the class. Well, I mean, it's something everybody emphasizes how the guards naturally started to become brutal towards the prisoners almost right away. And I guess the tapes just show Zimbardo pressuring them to behave in that way. And according to, you know, what I've read, I haven't listened to the tapes, but according to what I've read, you know, act like real prison guards abuse you need to be abusive prison guards and that is so damning if that's true um because (laughs) that's really everyone's big takeaway from it that's the connection between that and and and, uh the stanford prison experiment and abu Ghraib, um which was sort of the basis of the book the lucifer effect um, that Zimbardo wrote and that I interviewed him about, like all of that, like if that was just something that Zimbardo set up, then I don't even know what value the experiment has anymore. Yeah. Well, so yeah. So a few things like um, I, I listened to the little portion of the audio that was posted where the, whoever the, the lead research assistant or graduate student, I don't know, was explicitly saying, yeah, we have to play the role. You you guys all have to play the role of the tough guard. Like yeah. we we really want to make this like um and so, you know, sort of ironically what it does illustrate is the power of authority. Right. Right. I mean, it's like a we- it's a <laughs> it's like, milgram kind of. Exactly. It's like a milgram <laughs> and so in some sense it it, it might have value like that. <clears throat> the lying I cannot abide, right? Like the just blatant apparently blatant Lying about what was done is is something that that is to me just will cast a shadow on on Zimbardo's entire career. Now, the and I personally like sat face to face with him, and it's a it, it's and I and I don't know how much of this is conscious or unconscious, but it one way to look at it is you can also get this from the book the Lucifer effect, it's a kind of insidious sort of lying because he's very critical of himself in that book, in the interview. He's um, he's re- he's kind of condemning himself for having put this situation in place yeah. and oh, having yeah, been that's... so caught up in the role himself. And so because he's being so self-critical uh, and he seems to feel so guilty about it, you take for granted that what happened actually happened. Yeah, it's like, why would you lie about that? But and it's part of the, what became the lore. And it's almost like he's apologizing for his amazing powers of like within three days turning people into like, you know, complete sadists. Including <clears throat> um, himself. Yeah. Including himself. Um, yeah, no, I just like, I don't, I, I believe that over time he probably came to believe it, but but it does not exculpatory at all <laughs> like that he that he was i mean the original study and you know i'll put a link to uh I, when i was on partially examined life we talked about this experiment we we read the milgram paper and the zimbardo paper 
it was never really published, at least at first, not published in an academic uh, in an academic journal. Um, and here's like something that that I think should be a, a distinction. It it was always the case that it was viewed as a horribly designed study and not a true <laughs> right. experiment at all. And in fact, I remember in <clears throat> I think it was let's see, right around 1999. I could be wrong. But it was the very first conference of this, I think it was, one of the early conferences of the Social and Personality Psychology um, Society. And Zimbardo got a Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was given to him by John Darley, a Princeton psychologist who was famous for the bystander effect stuff. And John Darley was introducing him to receive this, this Lifetime Achievement Award. And I think it was the very last thing he said. He goes... You know, the one thing I would say, Phil, is that next time you do this, you should include a control group. Yeah. And and so, like, the crappy methodology has been evident, you know, so much so that people, you know, get away with calling it a demonstration. I know that uh, two of the Black Goat podcasts, Samin Vazir and Sanjay Srivastava, have come out really, really strong on Twitter saying that, like, fuck it, it's not even a demonstration. Like, fuck this, take it out of the textbooks. But when when I taught it, at least, and I'm not going to teach it anymore. Uh, it, I at least went out of my way to say this was not. This is not a good experiment. It's it's not right methodologically. There's a lot to be desired. Obviously, ethically, there's a lot to be desired. Um, but when John Darley said that, right before Phil Zimbardo came up, Phil Zimbardo clearly like was not happy with that accusation, and. The first thing he said, and I'll never forget it because I was just, it was like my first year of studying social psychology. And these guys are like gods to us, you know, like, <clears throat> yeah. and he goes, John, you said there's, there was no control group, but I, I'm here to tell you the control group was there. The control group was you and you and you and me. The control group was society itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And like maybe, maybe it's a powerful demonstration until we found out that he was just pressuring people to be assholes. But again, like, you know, even that is something that he was sort of upfront about in the book. He has this sort of funny story of a colleague coming in during like on the fourth day and asking him what the independent variable was <laughs> and him sort of saying, I look at this if feet liberal academic like i have a prison riot on my hands and he's asking me about like an independent <laughs> variable right like right. fuck that guy fuck that sjw <laughs> we're doing god's work here leave me alone <laughs> i mean i so there's a lot of interesting questions has zimbardo responded to, to I, not that i know of um you know i but 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 if he doesn't i mean he's denied so he's come out and denied blatantly that that the guy said that he didn't have a breakdown for real, but there's no reason to believe him on that. <laughs> well, no, apparently not. Like, there's no reason. I, I mean, one possibility is that he really believes that yeah. he believes the story that he's been spinning about it. One thing to say in favor of that is that for a long time, he just didn't talk about it very much. He didn't try to capitalize it. He didn't try to make money off of it. He didn't write a book about it. He didn't. He just, uh, and, and, and that all changed after Abu Ghraib. But, and, but there's this big, like, 20-year window where he really just didn't, uh, I, he kind of left it alone, right? Well, you know, 
not in the field. So like, I think he, the Abu Ghraib thing was an oppor- uh, an opportunity that catapulted it. Um, but the dude used to sell Stanford prison experiment t-shirts at conferences. Like, oh, really? he, yeah, he was hustling. Like, okay. <laughs> so it's like us, you know, it's like if 15 years from now we become a national phenomenon, you know, and people say, well, they, they weren't doing that much work all this time. No, no, we're trying. <laughs> we were trying. We just didn't get that break. <laughs> it was all scripted. Yeah. All their so-called improv. But we were, we're up front about that in our Patreon video. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything uh, is fully honed and precise down right. to the second here. So don't try to like <laughs> do your expose medium uh, piece <laughs> on us because yeah, right. we've get... already done that. Well, you know, I was going to say, I think that Zimbardo just got caught up in the role of psychology professor. <laughs> <laughs> right fraudulent psychology or is that really redundant (laughs) um but you know when um the pel guys and i read the zimbardo and the milgram uh, papers back to back it was actually really kind of cool to hear them when we were sort of concluding wrapping up one of the things that they said which is totally true is you know one thing so obvious is that the Zimbardo experiment, quote unquote experiment, was so much sloppier than the Milgram one. And Milgram was just meticulous. He ran like, you know, for whatever, 40 variations where he would tweak one little thing. He had just very, very, very clear hypotheses about about these things. You know, he, he would manipulate the, the, right, the color of the lab coat, the yeah. distance between the shocker and the person. And I know that the Milgram experiment has has come under fire for some things, but I think that it's it's one of those things that will hold up. It's just the question of like what what exactly are the situations and those those situations, the situational variables might change over time. You know, he he had one of the manipulations was. The professor was either at University of Bridgeport or at Yale University. Um, you know, who knows whether that's something that would work now. Um, but he was meticulous in collecting data. And I think that we have enough in his original data to at least make some general conclusions about what was there and what wasn't. And it's been replicated. Yeah. Sanford Prison Experiment is not. So, like, you said we'll talk about the teaching. Let's yeah. talk about that now. So, I mean... I, I, I can't tell you how central it has been to my intro to ethics class, you know, for the last six years or something. Um, I think into a lot, I mean, to a lot of that, like sort of just the emergence of the situationist view in ethics. Yeah. Right. It is so central to it. And so, right. So it's big in philosophy. I've all, I've often paired that with virtue ethics. Now, you know, if I hadn't interviewed Zimbardo, it would have been one. And, and it still is like this when I teach it. It's, it's one of, you know, along with the Ash conformity experiments, the Milgram experiments, the dime in the phone booth. I don't even right. want to know the problems with that, but it's <laughs> it's such a it's such a good experiment to teach. Um, right. the, it's hard to teach it now because no one knows what a phone booth is and why. But a dime you can would make, make jokes about that. <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> and 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 students really connect with it, and 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 connect with it in like some of in good ways. You know. Yeah. So yeah. what do you? I mean, obviously we can't teach it but what what are you what's your plan so one of the things that makes so i teach a big intro psych course in at cornell 
And you actually, we could talk about, uh, we didn't say this yet, but I'll pretend like we did because you might have to insert it. But Matt okay. Nock, who is going to be our, our guest in part oh, yeah. two, is actually a co-author of the textbook I use for intro psych. <clears throat> and one of the big problems for me is that as things have failed to replicate, textbook textbooks haven't caught up on it. So even if I don't want to teach it, chances are that the textbook I select for the class will have a lot of that in it. So it's so either I talk about it and tell them to ignore it, you know, but then I have right. to sort of explain why. Um, uh, or I just I just don't talk about it, right? And and don't say anything about it. Um, but it's like not just the Stanford Prison Experiment, obviously. There's a lot of findings that 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 don't hold up. And and I think that a lot of psych teachers, especially intro psych teachers, are really wanting somebody to keep track of what we can say with some certainty is a true finding and what we can't. And I don't know that the textbooks can keep up. Like the pace of textbook publishing isn't enough so that it isn't fast enough so that we can keep up. So what I try to do what i what i think i'm going to do with this is just try to use it as an example of where science can go wrong um and just use it as sort of a a teaching moment i try at first when i was teaching i was like unsure how much to talk about the replication stuff in an intro course because it's sort of like uh, it's almost self-defeating to be like oh by the way a lot of this is just bullshit um but i think that I can't do that anymore. Like I have to teach what rigorous science is. And I think we have to like, as a field, just be completely transparent about, about it. Um, yeah. So, so I'm definitely, if I talk about it, it'll be in a very critical tone. I mean, the lot, like the methodology stuff, at least you can teach them about methodology. For me, that's like not, you Mm -hmm. know, that's not part of an intro to ethics, really intro to like scientific ethics, but that's not my, my course. Yeah. It is, you know, it's one of the crown jewels, or it was one of the crown jewels of my my book. Yeah. Um, the interview with him. Now it's more of like an interesting artifact. Than Are you going to pull it? Are you going to ask for the, the chapter to be removed? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not like Soviet, like <laughs> erased from this history. This never happened. Never <laughs> happened. it is that racist um Um, let me ask you this this is something this is not actually related to this this is about the failed replication of a couple of famous studies i think it was the slow walking study yeah yeah. saying uh words um that right unscrambling words that had to do with elderly elderly people. people right and then there was another famous one that didn't replicate and then the marshmallow test maybe replicated but it wasn't as uh, clear cut so sanjay srivastava srivastava um he posted about this and he's kind of a watch he 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 could be that watchdog of yeah, 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 replication he he, so he he tweeted something that kind of bugged me and i couldn't i almost replied on twitter but i couldn't figure out exactly why it bugged me but he said something like for those of you who are using these as uh, evidence that psychology is invalid. Uh, it was psychology 
the whole reason we know about these is from psychology. The, right. the word psychology experiments. So good luck chasing your own tail. He said <laughs> that was the tweet. That, it's not verbatim, but that was. Yeah. And there was something that bugged me about it because it it seems like that just makes psychological or meth or that makes methodology in psychology unfalsifiable. If if there you can't ever question well is there something wrong with the methodology given that you're going to always be using the methodology to try to challenge the methodology then it seems like there's something about it that's unfalsifiable well right so so i think I, I think what he's trying to say, and we should have him on at some point. You know, he's, yeah. he 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 actually gave me a bunch of resources for the personality, um, uh, which we will we, do. We will do. Yeah. Um, I I think like we can distinguish between this the scientific method writ large, and then methodological improvements that we've made within psychology. <clears throat> so as we have realized the errors that we were making, we've improved sort of locally. We, we know that we were committing errors um, like small sample sizes, like not publishing um, failed attempts, um, all of the p-hacking stuff. We've improved that through the help of just, you know, statisticians and people who, who, who know the errors that we were making. But the scientific method of gathering empirical data just writ large is what has allowed us to know that these effects were not true so right so, so yeah the that. only way to learn about science is to do science you know and you just I, hope that we're improving so i guess the the thing that bugs me is i think you could make a case that psychology social psychology the in the way that it's being practiced you could make a similar case against that that people make against economics, that they're looking for laws and looking for generalizations at the wrong level, like that that's, that yeah. those things don't exist, right? And that the problem with social psychology and, and these all, you know, things failing to replicate and the, the, the p-hacking that people have been doing, the massaging, all of that, the outright fraud is just are just symptoms of this larger problem, and, which is that the level of explanation that it is hoping to provide just can't, it can't provide. And so that's the thing, I guess, that I wouldn't want that critique I wouldn't want to be ruled out by definition. Yeah, I I see what you're saying and I I tend to agree with you that one a, a real problem may be that they're using the methods that we are using and the approach that we're using that we are not going to uncover laws of of human behavior by looking at these slices of, of behavior in a lab or even in, in a real-world setting that, that we're not uncovering anything stable and reliable. I think the point that he's making, though, really is just one of, of and maybe to your point, if we doing it way better than we used to do it, like avoiding all chances of erring in the direction of finding something that isn't true, 
if we continue to do this and we find that nothing that we thought was true is actually true, then that would be at least something that should give us pause to evaluate whether or not we're approaching it the right way. Right. Um, I think the truth is, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic about it. If, if you want to understand human social behavior, the number of things that influence whether or not, say, you're going to act dishonestly on any given day or moment, there are so many things influencing that that the kind of study that we do where we manipulate one thing and see if it has a significant effect, I just, I'm not, I'm not optimistic that 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 is going to yield anything that interesting. What we're going to need is increasingly complex ways of looking at how all of the things interact together in producing behavior. And I, I think that human behavior ought to be predictable given that I don't, I don't believe that there's anything fancy or supernatural about the way our minds and brains work. But I think that it is such a complex problem and that social psychology has drastically underestimated how complex it is. To think that it would be so easy to build a theory of human behavior based on little two-by-two two manipulations, I don't know. It makes me yeah. want to kill myself, which maybe Matt not can help me with. <laughs> <laughs> in our yes. Segment. Okay. So uh, let, let let's get to uh, the 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 more somber topic of today's. That's episode, right. Which this is, one's going to be hilarious, guys. Uh, suicide and the the causes of suicide. What we know about it. What we don't know about it. Um, we will be right back. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time in the podcast, we like to thank all the people who get in touch with us, who contact us, who tweet us, email us, criticize us, um, explain why they like the podcast, how they've binge listened to like a hundred of them in five weeks. Some insane maniacs seem to do that. And how we play footsies with the uh, new right, the alt right, <laughs> the alt right. <laughs> I can I can pretty much say with <laughs> confidence that I have never played footsie with a member of the alt right. <laughs> but it was a metaphor. That's that's the thing. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't understand <laughs> metaphors. I'm a very literal person. <laughs> anyway, uh, so no footsie for me. I don't think I really play footsie. 
with progressives either, though. I'm no, a, like I, I limit my footsie to just moderates. <laughs> I don't even know what it is to play footsies with. If it if it means that we're not we try not to be too mean to anybody, then I play footsies with everybody. Well, I mean, I think it's more. I'm like that... a footsie whore. I'm a footsie whore. I, I like <laughs> have weird diseases on my foot now. I think it's you're like with friends. It's like everyone's <laughs> your friend. If everyone's your friend, no one's your friend. If you play footsie with no one, you play footsie with, with ev- everyone. Or everyone. Or, or <laughs> the other way around. I don't know. I'm the foot fucking master. Did you see uh, Incredibles <laughs> 2? Speaking of no, if no. everyone is special, no one is. No. Um, it's good. No spoilers. Yeah. Bella saw it last night. My yeah. Yeah. It's not great, but it's definitely the best thing that they've done in a while. So, yes, we'd like to thank you all. If you'd like to interact with us in all the ways you do, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, at verybadwizards. You can join the conversation on Reddit, which has been lively lately. Um, a lot of stuff going up. I actually hard uh, at first we could keep up I could keep up with it for the most part but now I can't but it's uh it's cool to see you can like us on Facebook um rate us on iTunes we love to see your reviews and your ratings on iTunes and um is that all the ways they can contact us like us on Instagram follow us F- sorry follow us on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> and and if you'd like to support us in more tangible ways, you can do that in one of three ways. You can PayPal us a one-time donation. This will be all of these are found on the support page. You can PayPal us a one-time donation. You can click on the Amazon link before you shop at Amazon, and we will get a small portion of that. And you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. There's a whole series of rewards that um, you can choose from based on the tier of support that you do. We are so grateful to our Patreon listeners, and they keep the lights on for us. They keep the microphones live. They keep <laughs> hot. They keep the microphones <laughs> hot. Yeah, thanks to everybody. We appreciate it and we keep on appreciating it it's like it's, it's, it still seems incredible that people have stuck with us this long exactly Un- unreal thank you and those who haven't stuck with us you know we probably don't know about yeah <laughs> they're not listening <laughs> they're not listening Fuck yeah. all y'all <laughs> <laughs> like what, what the what the hell was i thinking it's like they they woke up from a bad dream or something also uh, I just want to give a, a, a plug for another podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, that I like a lot. It's a, it's, another, it's a philosophy podcast, very different from ours. It is well-produced. Well, I think <laughs> ours is kind of well-produced. It's in its different own, style of well-produced. <laughs> yeah, it's a, but this is, it's highly produced yes. um, in, the, in the style of This American Life Um he he picks a topic and he goes out and interviews people most relevant to that topic. He did uh, a recent one on addiction. He's wrapping up season two. He does seasons. 
That's yeah, we should have thought of that. We should, we should have. This has been uh, six years. We're almost hitting six years here. You know, it's, I, I think we have pretty much are. Yeah, and uh, yeah, his latest one on addiction is is really good. So check out High Phi Nation. High P H I Nation. I th- I think if you like this podcast, you may enjoy that one, even though they're they're very different in style. And apologies to two psychologists, four beers. We couldn't plug you this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do kind of shit on them a little yeah. bit in, in the first segment. They're going to be our, you know how Jimmy Kimmel does apologies to Matt Damon all the time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to do, uh, I'm fucking Yo- Yoel Limbar. <laughs> All right, uh, we're now here with the illustrious Matthew Nock, professor at Harvard University, MacArthur Fellow, and also just all around cool, cool motherfucker. Uh, I I knew Matt from grad school. We were we were roll dogs, as they say, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've been friends. We've been friends since then, but since that time. Uh, Matt has gone on to an illustrious career studying suicide and self-injury, whereas I record a podcast. <laughs> so th- thanks for coming on, Matt. And here uh, we all are. It's, it's, it's really nice to have you. To Thank see you guys you. for having me. Yeah. How did that happen? If you guys start in the same place and have such vastly different career arcs, one so successful and the other just slumming it. Yeah. I got tenure at a minor Ivy and you got tenure at a real Ivy. Is Cornell is Cornell Ivy? They consider that. That's what they say. That's yeah. what they say. I mean, <laughs> I never heard that when I was at Yale. I was that's, right. that's right. Not a. I thought it was a state school. Yeah. It is half of it is. You obviously, like I just said, I know you from grad school, and yep. you studied under uh, um, an advisor, uh, very well known in, in clinical psychology. Your your PhD is in clinical psychology. If I didn't say that, um, yes. Uh, Somebody who studied child conduct disorders, right? Alan Kasdan. How did how did you how and when, Alan Kasdan? Yeah. How and when did you switch to studying suicide and self injury? Yep. Uh, so I, I was I got interested in the topic of suicide during my junior year of college at, at Boston U. I was doing a semester abroad in London, and the program you know you did, you did a few classes and then they put you in an internship. So I had one friend who was into marketing and he was working at the Guinness Brewery. Another guy was into music and he was working at like EMI records. So in clinical psych, they placed us in psychiatric settings. And I was the only male in the program. Psychology is a very female dominated field. So they had, yeah, this, especially clinical, right? Especially clinical. So I had this one placement that was in a violent ward of a hospital where they had a lot of violent, self injurious, suicidal patients. And so they said, we'll put you in there because we don't want any of the, the female students getting uh, assaulted. And so I was working in this unit for a semester. And was exposed to lots of really violent, self-injurious, suicidal patients and was really shocked, blown away by the behavior, behaviors. And at the time, wanted to be a practicing clinician. I wanted, I wanted nothing to do with research. It sounded like a cold, sort of boring field. But I thought, as a clinician, this is probably the most difficult problem I'll have to face. So let me figure out how to treat suicide and self-injury. And then I can go and graduate, hang up a shingle somewhere and see patients. And you know everything else will be easier once I understand this behavior. And just... Obviously, didn't understand it. As a field, we still struggle to understand it. And through that process, started reading about suicide and got involved in suicide research all before grad school. And I was looking, when I went to grad school, for advisors that study suicide and self-injury. 
And there, there weren't a lot at the time. There's still not a lot, relatively speaking. Um, and so I ended up applying to work with people who study related behaviors like violence, child conduct problems, alcohol, substance use. Uh, I was fortunate to, to, to land at Yale to work with, uh, with Alan and, and study child conduct problems, but also did some suicide work with Alan. Uh, and then Mitch Princeton arrived while, while Dave and I were there. And I, I started to work with him doing work more squarely on suicide self-injury. <clears throat> so that helps as, as context, because I, I, I realized I didn't even know I didn't know that at Boston you were already interested in it. For I wanted Tamler to say a little bit about why we wanted to talk about we we've, we've been wanting to talk about I think suicide for a while, but it be, it sort of just like we just decided kind of like no we got to talk about it now, and I'll have Tamler talk a little bit about it. I mean, it's not hugely surprising why we wanted to talk about suicide now, given that there were these two highly publicized suicides. Kate Spade and then Anthony Bourdain. I did not know who Kate Spade was before that happened, but I was a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. You know, loved his book Kitchen Confidential. I wasn't a religious watcher of those shows that he did, but you know, the one he did about Houston has completely transformed the way the country thinks of the city that I live in, and I've always just liked him. And it ra- it raised these questions to me that I've been thinking about a lot. I think the first time they really became palpable was when David Foster Wallace committed suicide. This was a guy that seemed like Bourdain, not just at the top of his field, not just well-respected, but doing work that was clearly worthwhile, doing work and, and having a life, you know, uh, David Foster Wallace was teaching at one of the Claremont colleges, which he seemed to enjoy. And Bourdain is traveling a lot, but he seemed like he was in a relationship with someone that he loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like had a lust for life. And a, like just, I, yeah, that's the, why people loved him is it was infectious, his lust for life and his and his and his lust to connect with people and connect with their traditions and to eat with them and it just made me realize how much i don't understand about suicide and the kind of depression that might lead to it um i think i've been really fortunate to not have the kind of mental health issues that people that said that have come into much sharper focus in these last five or ten years mm-hmm. uh, and to not also be really really close to anybody you know close member of my family who suffers from them so we thought we'd have somebody on just to tell us what we know and what we don't know about suicide but that's why i sort of proposed that we do this topic to dave it's something that we've floated we're a little concerned about it because mm-hmm. it's very somber and we're not a somber podcast but that's that's sort of why we decided to do this why we decided to do it now and why dave thought that given how much we don't know it would be good to have you on yeah great yeah i'm glad you guys are doing it uh it is a somber topic, and it's something that people often don't like to talk about, uh, which I think is part of the problem with suicide. And I, I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but it's, you know, it's just to get a few facts out there. It, it's the 10th suicide, the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., the second leading cause of death among young people, uh, adolescents and young adults, uh, four times as many 
men than women die by suicide, and that's true around the world. Uh, so it's a big problem, and it's been a big problem for a really long time. It's gotten more attention in the past few weeks, especially for the reasons you've described. There was also a recent CDC report suggesting or, or reporting that the suicide rate in the U.S. has been climbing each year for the past you know, 15 to 20 years. And so some describe this as a current epidemic. I think that's wrong. I mean, the numbers are right, but it's not a new problem. If, if you look back to the 15, 20 years before that, the suicide rate was dropping. And the suicide rate now is literally virtually identical to what it was 100 years ago. So oh, wow. if you look at other leading causes of death, uh, cancer, accidents, flu, pneumonia, and on and on, the mortality rate has dropped precipitously over the past 100 years as science has advanced, policy has advanced, you know, HIV, AIDS, all these things, they, they, they've dropped enormously. The suicide rate, the line is flat. And so the, to me, the big story isn't why this recent uptick, it's why hasn't the rate changed over 100 years where it has for so many other conditions uh, for suicide, it stayed the same. And I think it has a lot to do with exactly this, this the stigma that people don't talk about it. It's a somber topic. There's concern about contagion. If we talk about it, maybe it will give people the idea to do it and it will make things worse. And so people have largely stayed away from it. Researchers have stayed away from it. Uh, Congress has stayed away from it. And so funding wise, if you look at how much funding there is for suicide research, again, it's one of the leading causes of death, death but it's dwarfed by other, other causes of death in terms of funding. You know, there's yeah. more there's more funding for dietary supplements, for migraines, for these. Not that, you know, we don't need dietary Actually, that's arguable. Right. Need dietary supplements. But, you know, things like migraine, Lyme I mean, disease. The map, baldness just alone, probably. Yeah. <laughs> right. Lots and Which, lots of problems. That, you know, who, yeah. we, should, we should study baldness. But, yeah. you know, given the scope of the problem, the magnitude of the problem for suicide, it's 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 a travesty that we don't have more attention to this. In, in this so so let me country. let me ask you like a bit like I find that there is so much sort of maybe because of the stigma, what you learn about suicide is often just lore, mm -hmm. right? Like yep. we get a lot of basic facts wrong um, about it. But is one reason that we don't talk about it as that much because people just think that if you take your own life, a lot of people re respond to anger, respond with anger mm -hmm. at when a close one commits suicide. And I remember that Matt and I had a, a close friend in grad school who took his own life, but mm -hmm. you know, for reasons we can distinguish these reasons, he had a terminal, uh, terminal illness. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I was so surprised that my initial reaction was being mad at him. Mm -hmm. And that like it was a heavy dose of like, well, you chose to do this, so like, it, this isn't like AIDS where like it's a side effect of doing mm -hmm. what everybody does. Mm -hmm. This is like people who are who are clearly making some sort of choice, mm -hmm. and and maybe we just don't think that it's as important as things that are uncontrolled. Like we view it as more controllable. Like if you decide to end your life, it's very much not a disease. Absolutely, and there there's some research on this that you know. Uh, clinical staff doesn't, let's say doesn't like, likes less people who are self-injurious and suicidal because there's a perception that they are voluntarily taking up, quote unquote, resources that could be used for people who didn't, quote unquote, create their own problem. And so there's this, for if it's a loved one, anger, confusion, and for clinical staff, that you know, suicidal self-injurious patients can get treated differently. Uh, and again, there's, there's a, a small body of research documenting this. So one 
reaction that actually you haven't seen so much in the Bourdain thing, but, you know, it's certainly something that crossed my mind. He has an 11-year-old daughter. So one question is, well, why, how how can you, as bad as things might get for you, how can you just commit suicide when you have this 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 girl that depends on you it's really important for kids to have fathers and you know that you're one of the smartest people and savviest people out there so what's wrong with a kind of anger not from us but from people who knew them what 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 is there a mistake in looking at it that way yeah there's a few things in there one is slight tangent you, you, you both said, use the term committed suicide. If I may, people in this area uh, yeah, yeah. don't like the yeah. term committed because yeah. it harkens back to when suicide was a crime. And right. so the preferred term is died by suicide. Yeah. Uh, having young children is associated with a lower risk, lower odds of suicide attempt and suicide death. Uh, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain both had, both had young kids, teen, you know, young teens. Uh, so there is some sort of protective... Uh, effect, so to speak, of having kids of people who are suicide. Actually, we, we did one study where uh, pe- people with young kids have a higher rate of thinking about suicide, understandably, given the you know increased <laughs> stress and so on, but lower rate of suicide attempts and suicide death. I, I think it's understandable to be angry and confused about you know why would the the person uh, quote unquote do this to their to their kids. One thing to keep in mind is not ninety to ninety five percent of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable mental disorder. Uh, and our psychological research in this area suggests that people, you know, think differently when they're suicidal. They become much more cognitively constricted, uh, much more focused on the present, less so on the past, less so on the future. And they experience a lot of psychological pain. And so we think of suicide, you know, a lot of the research focuses on suicide as being related to mental disorders, but that doesn't tell the whole story. It's re- if you talk to people who've tried to kill themselves and survived, what they say is, I was in this intense psychological pain, this intense uh, predicament, and I couldn't see a way out of it. The only way I saw out of it was to escape by suicide. And often there's a perception that for them to live is worse for their family. Erroneous right. as that is, they think, you know, I am a burden to my family. Uh, I, I do more harm to them by being alive. That's how awful I am, how awful my situation is. If I die, they'll be better off. You you mentioned the link between psychopathology and and suicide. Right. I think everybody as, assumes, and it might be right. You you tell me that that it's depression that is the precur- the psychological precursor to suicide. But I don't know if that's always the case. And and maybe just well, maybe actually because you study self injury as well, and I think that's something yeah. that people don't understand. So cutting be- non lethal cutting behavior or like non attempts. Um, or, or self-injurious behavior, ideation, attempt, and completion. Right. So all of these things refer to intentional self-injury or intentional self-harm. So doing things to purposely hurt yourself. Uh, you can make a big split between self-harm that's suicidal in nature, where there's some intention of dying, and non-suicidal in nature. So non-suicidal self-injury refers to direct, deliberate destruction of body tissue in the absence of any intent to die. So often taking the form of cutting or burning of the skin. About 15 or so percent of, of young people, adolescents and adults report engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. They cut, they burn, they insert objects under the skin. 
they don't want to die. And they say that very clearly. They do it to get some kind of relief. And, and this isn't a big predictor of suicide. It actually in is. The it, we've it learned okay. in the past few years only. I mean, there's, there's always, always, for, for, for a number of years, it's been a big split. And people have said there's suicidal self-injury. There's non-suicidal self-injury. Uh, NIH and other folks have said, well, we're not so concerned about non-suicidal self-injury because it's not suicidal. But we've recently, over the past few years, seen that non-suicidal self-injury is actually a pretty strong predictor of making a suicide attempt down the road. So it's something that people are taking a lot more seriously. In the, in the realm of suicidal self-injury, people often make distinctions between suicidal ideation, which is a made-up psychology term for thoughts. So basically suicidal thinking, <laughs> thinking about wanting to kill yourself, making a suicide plan. So formulating some kind of plan of how you're going to kill yourself, which we see as a little bit more um, concerning. And then actually making a suicide attempt, which refers to engaging in potentially lethal behavior with some intention of dying, taking pills, trying to hang yourself, shooting yourself, and so on. In terms of mental disorders, things like depression uh, predict all of these outcomes. And for a long time, the research said that mental disorders like depression, and depression is present in about 60 or so, about two-thirds of cases of suicide attempts. So not all, but the, but the majority. Mental disorders in general, things like depression, anxiety, substance use, alcohol use, impulse control disorders like conduct problems and so on, all predict suicide attempts. Over the past few years, we've done research looking at data on over 100,000 people from uh, two dozen countries. So really big sample size, really big represent, really representative. What we see is that mental disorders like depression are actually really strong predictors of thinking about suicide. If you look at the few thousand people in our sample who are thinking about suicide, Depression doesn't predict who goes on to make a suicide attempt. What does predict is disorders characterized by anxiety, agitation, poor behavioral control, things like PTSD, panic disorder, antisocial behavior, um, conduct problems. So putting this together, what we think happens is you know, de depression and related conditions might get a person thinking about suicide, but this sort of problems with uh, behavioral regulation or, or, or behavioral control predict acting on those thoughts. Right. You know, one of the things that I remember learning from you um, in a conversation back in the day is how much suicidism is actually impulsive. And I remember here at Cornell, you know, the, I don't think the suicide rate over the years is different than any other institution of its size. It's just that that it is it, it makes more headlines. These are very, very sort of public suicides when people jump off of the gorges here. And so, um, so Cornell has this sort of reputation as a school where, where a lot of suicides occur. When we had a year where there was a rash of, of, of suicides, um, they put big fences around the bridges um, to prevent people from jumping off of them into the gorge. And, I, and now it's been replaced by nets. But I remember thinking, well, if, if somebody wants to die... You know, they you can find your way around a, a fence. Like it's it doesn't seem to be uh, something that would really impede a strong desire to die. Until I realized what you say that that if you can kill the that behavioral impulse in the moment, perhaps you can actually uh, prevent a suicide. And I don't know what the data is on yeah. this. Like, um, how much is planned and how much is impulsive? Because I imagine it's hard to gather data about. And there's a lot of debate around this in the field right now. How how impulsive are suicides? And there's data on, you know, in, in both directions. There was a, a really interesting paper done by uh, a researcher named Alex Milner. I'm biased. He's one of our postdocs. He interviewed a bunch of people who were 
who had made suicide attempts and asked them very carefully about the timeline. You know, some people say suicide is very impulsive and people think about it only a few minutes before they make an attempt. And if you give measures of impulsiveness to suicidal people, stop signal tasks, uh, go, no go task, delay discounting task, you see no, no effect. There's, there's no difference between suicidal and non-suicidal people. So they're not more impulsive on our, on our measures. When he interviewed people, he sees that the average person that, that he interviewed, they had thought about suicide for the first time about five years before they made their attempt. Hmm. Suicidal thoughts can ebb and flow. They, they come and go over the years. For the current attempt, they start thinking about suicide about two weeks beforehand. About six hours before, they start really mulling it over. And only hmm. about five minutes before were they sure, okay, I'm going to do it today. So, hmm. yeah, it's a little bit more subtle, right. a little more complex. The, the, the thought, it, it, it very rarely happens that someone's never thought of suicide and they're walking across a bridge and says, I think I'm going to kill myself. What happens is the thought was there for you know a year or so before and the past few weeks, maybe someone's thinking about it. Uh, and in those contexts, the decision can happen right before. And the idea is right. If you, if you can prevent the person in those five minutes, 10 minutes before, given that these things tend to ebb and flow, maybe if you can get them through that period, they'll be okay. What so one group of people that I talk to who have a lot of connection with people who take their own lives are military. I have a lot mm-hmm. of students who are military, and when I talk to them, it it they 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 seem to all have friends, often multiple friends, people they know who have died by suicide. Mm-hmm. What first of all. I don't know. I've I've read that the statistics are higher for people who come out of the military, and so are those statistics true? Are is is it more common among um, soldiers? And if so, why? It's a great question. the The suicide rate among army soldiers has historically been uh, well below that of the general population. The idea being that the army screens people for mental disorders and excludes people who have mental disorders. There are supports in place uh, in terms of counseling, social supports. You are constantly surrounded by other people. Uh, you're active, you're exercising, you're eating well, uh, and so on. Over the past 10, 15 years, the suicide rate among soldiers has crept up and for the first time has surpassed that of the general population. If you look at age, um, gender matched population. And so the, the Department of Defense funded a huge study uh, called the Army Study to Assess Risk and Resilience Among Service Members, or Army STARS. And it's a big, the initial study was a five-year, $65 million effort to really try and understand this. And the simple explanations turned out not to be true. Uh, and there's a website, if you Google Army STARS, you can find the website and find publications. Yeah, we'll, put a li- we'll put a link to Great. it. Uh, things like, uh, well, it's deployment. Soldiers are deploying and deployment stressful. So it's if you, if you look at who's deployed, that will tell you who's suicidal. And if you look at the data, you see soldiers who have been who are currently deployed, the suicide rate's gone up. But it also has gone up for soldiers who have been previously deployed, and also has gone up for soldiers who have never been deployed. So it's not just deployment. Some said, well, it's it's waivers. The army is having trouble recruiting people, and so they loosened the criteria for joining the army. So if you look among only people with who got a waiver to join the army. They had a mental disorder. They had a criminal record. That's where the uptick is. That's not the case. And on and on. So there's all, a lot of potential explanations that have panned out to not be the case. Uh, 
the effort's still ongoing to understand, well, why is it that soldiers, that we should, not just that soldiers are at risk, that we're seeing an increased risk among soldiers, and we don't yet understand it, but that effort has produced some really, uh, some really nice findings. For instance, Ron Kessler and colleagues at Harvard Medical School as part of Army STARS have been using uh, machine learning models, machine learning algorithms to go across uh, Army medical and administrative records to identify soldiers at risk for suicide. And I've gotten pretty accurate at you know, using quote unquote big data um, to identify the soldiers at highest risk uh, for suicide. Uh, and so our, our predictive uh, capabilities are, are increasing over the past several years. Are the predictions uh, that are generated by machine learning, are these matching up with the proposed mechanisms, the theoretical approaches that 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 have sort of been uh, proposed for understanding suicide? The sort of big data predictive analytics, I think, are most accurately thought of as as crassly empirical prediction uh, and approaches that might point us towards variables that we weren't considering previously. That could be part of our theoretical models. I think in general, we've been way overly simplistic in our theoretical models of suicidal behavior. And I'm not picking out on any, any one uh, theory, but they gen- generally tend to say there's two factors that if they're present lead to suicide, or there's three factors that if they're present lead to suicide. It's not that simple. I mean, this is a really a behavior that's a result of complex interactions between a lot of different factors. Distress, sadness, clearly play a big role. Uh, problems with sleep, uh, problems with agitation, conditions from which a person might want to escape all play a role. A lot of the things that pop out in some of these papers, genetic papers, uh, papers looking at voice, movement, you know, these are probably all capturing different pieces of being distressed or having trouble sleeping and so on. So they're a little bit, a little bit redundant. So we're still struggling yeah. as a field, I think, to come up with a, 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 a theoretical model that explains the pathway from not being suicidal to thinking about suicide to making a suicide attempt to dying by suicide. What about isolation? So that's the hypothesis that I've seen floated around Mm -hmm. that to explain the increasing rates of suicide among former military is Mm -hmm. going from a regimented and highly social communal environment to one that's more isolated. And then, you know the dark you know ever since Durkheim people have been saying that in modernized more isolated environments suicide rates are much higher than in uh places that are more communal uh-huh. is that does that hold up in the research yeah in, in in various ways it does uh on a broad scale you know what's the suicide rate with sorry the the, the state with the lowest suicide rate what do you think um no googling Massachusetts. No, Massachusetts is is low. I I would say a southern state with a heavy black population. No, the suicide. So 90% of suicides in the U.S. are quote unquote white people. Right. That's what I was was saying. Like, like, because, you know, it's it's a weird finding the black American men. Yeah, there's a big big racial effect. New Jersey, New York have the lowest suicide rate. Oh, wow. The highest rates are out in, you know, western states. Uh, not California, so you know Nevada, Wyoming, and so on. And what we think is it has to do with, uh, at least in part, population density. That it, you know New Jersey is, uh, you know, New York very densely populated. As you go out west, people are more spread out, and so perhaps more socially isolated. We also have data not yet published, so 
don't share this, but I, I, I don't think anyone, <laughs> I don't think anyone listens to this podcast, so it's fine. Yeah, no, uh, no, no. yeah nobody. D- data, data from a uh, new smartphone study where we look at people's calls and texts going in and out, uh, and we see that you know, the less people are, are getting and sending texts, the more likely they are to be thinking about suicide and to have more severe suicide. So there seems to be something across multiple you know levels of analysis to this idea of connectedness being uh, protective against suicidal thinking. Do you, is, there's a huge, uh, always this like very weird, um, discomfort in talking about people who attempt suicides Mm -hmm. and some people really want to say it wasn't serious, you Mm -hmm. know, the whole cry for help thing. Um, but from what I read in the literature that you reviewed, it seems as if suicide attempts, you are pretty strong predictors of future suicide attempts. You know, there's obviously, you never want to not take somebody's suicide attempt seriously, I guess. Right? That's there's, right. There's, um, yeah. Yeah. Any, so I would say, you know, anytime a person says they're suicidal, you should take it seriously. Anytime a person makes a suicide attempt, you should take it seriously. But we don't have a good understanding of when someone says they're suicidal, which of those people are going to die by suicide and which ones aren't. When someone makes a suicide attempt, which of those is going to be lethal and which one isn't? Uh, Two thirds of people who die by suicide told someone ahead of time they were thinking about suicide. So you should take it seriously. 80% of people who die by suicide explicitly denied suicidal intention in their last communication before dying, which Hmm. is contrary, right? So most people are telling others they're going to kill themselves, but most people are also saying, I'm not going to kill myself. So it's hard to know which cases or in which instance should we be really concerned and in which instance might we be still concerned, but less so. And the same with suicide attempts. So we don't know. A lot of the biggest effects that are out there, like for for um, gender, for age, uh, for race, they've been there for years and years, and we just don't have a good understanding of, of why they're there. So you don't, there's no good hypothesis for why the rates are much lower among black people? There are hypotheses. I, I it is among African it's it's among African American, right? It's not even among like I don't know what the rates are in Africa, but is it? It's among African Americans in the U.S. have a, a much yeah. lower suicide rate, and the hypotheses that people tend to to offer are well, there's greater uh, social connectedness. Great. Uh, people are more tied into their community, and so so uh, perceive more social support. Uh, the suicide rate is highest among white men and it really skyrockets in older white men and the idea you mentioned tamla earlier isolation the, the, the hypothesis older white men tend to not be as connected and they retire from their jobs and you know they lost their social network and now they're on their own they're no longer providing and so you know perceive that they have no meaning in life and that they're a burden to others and so they uh, are more likely to die by suicide do you work in terms of suicidal suicide prevention with individual people um, I know if, are, are you still in clinical psychology? Are you working with patients? I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. So I, I have the ability to see patients. I haven't seen a patient for purely clinical purposes in over 10 years. Uh, but a lot of the work that we do is in hospitals and with patients. So we, uh, have studies running in local emergency rooms and psychiatric inpatient units where we are trying to serve the uh, one way that we work is, is develop um, tests that try and help us predict suicidal behavior, develop them in the lab, and then bring them into clinical settings and see, can these help us better 
detect suicidal thinking and understand suicidal thoughts and behaviors and, and predict these outcomes. And we do test out interventions as well. Uh, so I, I don't work clinically on a personal level, but we're trying to develop uh, tools that can help uh, prevent suicide in a scalable way. One of the things that just strikes me the most, and maybe it's just in what I've read that you've wrote, is 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 exactly how little, yeah. how like non non powerful our predictive models are for suicide, and it's it's kind of depressing. Um, it's humbling, but, yeah. But how much do interventions like suicide prevention hotlines work? I mean, there's a big mm-hmm. selection effect, right? So if you're going to call one of those places, you you know you you just behaviorally are are distinguished from somebody who doesn't call them and dies by suicide. Yeah. Um, we don't know. There's actually just a great article written on this, coincidentally, by Cole Kasdan. I just wrote a piece this past week on... It was titled something like, Are Suicide Hotlines Effective? Uh, and the answer is we don't know because no one's really done the randomized, no one really has, no one has done the randomized trial to to test out whether calling the hotline uh, decreases the person's risk of suicidal behavior because of complications of, you know, how do you follow up somebody who's calling an anonymous hotline? Right. Uh, nor have we really a good understanding of, are there things that one can do on a hotline to decrease a person's risk of suicidal behavior or suicide death? So we, you know, a lot of what's out right. there. You don't want to like randomize the things that you say. <laughs> right. Like it's, right. Yeah, but mean, you, one could, you know, do yeah. an observational study where we, you know, as a first step, examine whether certain right. kinds of interventions are more effective than others. Yeah. But yeah, we, we don't have a good, there's a lot that people do in the name of suicide prevention. A lot of it is very well intentioned. We haven't done a good enough job at experimentally testing what what that we're doing is working and what isn't. And let's get rid of the, the stuff that doesn't work or is actually harmful uh, and scale up the stuff that does work and try to make it more powerful. So we've got, we've got a really far way to go. So if we have listeners say that n- knows somebody that has suicidal thoughts, is there anything you can tell them, any advice you can give them that you have any confidence might reduce the person's chance of going through with it? I think that the best advice we have right now is if you think someone is thinking about suicide, you should ask them about it directly. We know from experimental, from experiments, asking someone, are you thinking about suicide, does not make that person more distressed, nor does it make them more likely to think about suicide or to make a suicide attempt. So we know clearly, experimentally, it is safe to ask someone. Uh, So you should ask someone if if you think they're at risk. Let them know you're there to, to talk with them. Tamla, you mentioned the importance of um, social connectedness, and, and I think you're right, and that's n- never a harmful thing. And encourage that person to get help, whether it's, I'm not saying one shouldn't call a hotline, I'm just saying we don't yet know how effective it is, and or bring the person to a local emergency room. People are often very fearful of going to the emergency room because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't want to be hospitalized against their will. Usually a person isn't hospitalized. Usually they'll go and they'll get an evaluation and then we'll get connected with care. We'll get an appointment for a follow-up meeting with a a psychiatrist or a psychologist or another mental health professional and can start getting treatment for whatever underlying problem might be leading them to feel like they don't want to be alive anymore. They want to escape from some problem. So I think we're in the process of trying to to identify uh, and improve the interventions we have, but we do have treatments that have been shown to decrease a a person's risk of suicidal behavior and so people should try and, if you think someone's at risk, 
try and get them into one of those interventions. Right. So what I was reading in, in your in your review paper was that there's some evidence that CBT and, and attachment therapy for families, um, at least in youth, can reduce kids, it. Right. Yeah. Yep. And there's a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, uh, which, along with cognitive therapy, has been shown to decrease the risk of suicide attempts among adults and with some new evidence for adolescents as well. You know, in in the time we have left, I don't, I don't know, Tamler, how many questions you have, but I, like, I can't help but like ask about the contagion effects that everybody discusses and yeah. how how powerful those actually are. I mean, in in some ways, it's it's kind of insane uh, that they would be strong given mm-hmm. the the horrible track record of social priming <laughs> that <laughs> we have, <laughs> um, but. But, you know, I saw people just getting really mad, like at the New York Times and the way they talked about the Kate, the, the Kate Spade suicide, because apparently there are guidelines for how to talk about something. You never mm-hmm. talk about the method. I know that in the, you know, in the Bay Area, the, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, they don't publicize um, uh, death by suicide on the Golden Gate Bridge because of, of fear of attempts. And uh, and I mean, on the one hand, you could say if five people more uh, attempt suicide because of the headline, it might be significant, but like, what is the size of this? Like, is it really, you know, how concerned should we be about not publicizing it? Cause on, cause it really puts a parody. It's a paradox because you want to talk right. about it, it right. you know, um, you want to make it less stigmatizing, but here you are having people police don't say that, that it was death by hanging. Like, don't say it. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. There, it, it is a paradox. Uh, there does, there is evidence that there is some, not surprisingly, influence of influence on our behavior, of the behavior of others. Some of the, one of the best recent studies I saw on this was an army study. It was a study done by by Bob Versano, um, at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences, showing that in units, in army units, where there is an increasing, the the, the more suicide attempts in your unit, the greater the odds that you're going to make a suicide attempt. So these things tend to pile up, especially in smaller units, which suggests that they're sort of closer to you. So there does seem to be some, what one can call a, a, a contagion effect or a social influence effect. At the same time, it's important to acknowledge it doesn't spread in the same way that many you know, airborne diseases do, where if you right. hear about it, you're going to catch it. And so on one hand, we have to be conscious of the fact that there is some impact of suicidal behavior on those around. But we can't let that prevent us from talking about it at all, because then we miss the opportunity to talk to people about it who might be at risk and to connect them with care. And so we've got to get a, I think we've got to do a better, got to get a better understanding as researchers on exactly how we should thread that needle uh, and how society, how, how should we deal with this? We, we can't let the fact that there is this quote unquote contagion effect keep us from talking about suicide and keep us from funding research on it and keep us from getting the research that we have out into the hands of clinicians and others who can use it. So I think we've got to do a better job of figuring out that balance. The media guidelines try and do that. They say talk about suicide, but do it in ways that we think won't lead to contagion. Don't romanticize it. Don't glamorize it. Don't you know present a sort of how-to guide of how the person did it because those right. kind of things could could make things worse. It could increase the number of people who try and uh, copycat. Is there any evidence that reading about suicide in the New York Times about uh, increases the chance that you'll, or not just the New York Times, but in a, in the media? 
Yeah, because, I mean, it's very different when your friends are doing it versus... No, there, I mean, there have been studies over the years suggesting that there's a small effect for, uh, you know, how popular was the person who did it? How much was that person perceived to be like me versus not? Uh, and there's some suggestions, some, some, some data suggesting that the way it's reported on can have, a, can, ha can have an impact. There's no data that I've seen that, you know, uh, well, there, again, there's data suggesting that, that uh, being exposed to the concept of suicide or suicidal behavior doesn't in itself uh, increase a person's risk. So reading about the idea of suicide or listening to this podcast, uh, you know, isn't going to uptick anybody's suicide risk. It's, you know, when, when you're exposed to the suicide of someone else, uh, maybe there could be some impact of that. Maybe if you've been thinking about suicide and you observe that somebody who you idolize, you know, died by suicide, maybe that it, it, it could increase your or, or have you revisit some of those thoughts and get you thinking about it again. There is kind of like I remember Kurt Cobain. It was almost a lead part of his legend that he committed suicide. That was one that seemed a lot more glamorized. But uh, and with thirteen reasons why it was out recently, there was a paper showing an uptick in Google searches about how to kill myself. So oh, wow. you know, not so surprising that if you if you have a show for kids about suicide and the effects of suicide, and many people think that wasn't it wasn't done in the best possible way. Not surprising that we get an uptick in again, searches about this. It's, it's going to raise people's consciousness about the problem in a way that's not necessarily positive. You said at the outset that that suicide is really marked by a flat line, like it's. Mm -hmm. But but is is there any understanding of why there was that fifteen twenty year dip? No, I people will give you explanations. You know, yeah, there's a fifteen year increase, and you'll find people saying, "Well, it's opioids. Uh, it's the social media. It's." Very yeah, it's it's hard. Right, to, right, right. Yeah, it's hard. It's and, hard to classify opioid deaths too, right? Because yeah, uh, yeah. What's yeah. an overdose? What's accidental versus yeah. uh, intentional? So there's no shortage of offered explanations, but I have not seen any any good uh, empirical any good explanation of the variant showing this is why it decreased and this is why it increased. I did have one one specific question too. What is the uh, connection with sleep deprivation? I mean, it seems to be something that that people point to a lot, and I don't know if it's a cause of yeah. of of suicidal attempts or if it's just what comes along with the symptoms of being so distressed. It's a great question. There, there's there's for decades we've known that there's a link between uh, sleep problems and subsequent suicide death. We don't yet to my understanding, have, have a good understanding of, you know, what is that distress causing problems in sleep? And so the sleep is a, you know, this third variable that's explained by distress or is sleep causing the distress or causing some disinhibition or most likely it's both. It's a sort of transactional process where you're upset, you're anxious, you're distressed. And so you're sleeping less and you're sleeping less and that's causing more irritability and agitation and inhibition. And this might cycle and, and, and increase your risk of suicidal behavior. So we don't know. We're doing studies now where we have people wearing biosensors 24 hours a day for you know weeks at a time, tracking suicidal thoughts to see, can we uh, try and tease this apart? And right now we haven't published this yet to the point where we can use just with biosensor, a wearable biosensor, using your data from today, we can predict with about 80% accuracy whether you're going to think about suicide tomorrow. And so yeah. we're starting to go in and say, well, what is, is it sleep? Is it motion? Is it skin conductance? You know, what kind of predictive power do we get from these different pieces? And what does the timeline look like? And can we yeah. you know, tease apart 
when the stress started ticking up and when sleep problems started ticking up. Man, I mean, that that's going to be like as wearable technology increases and, you know, the Apple Watch gets more complex, like that might be a, a real source of intervention. How are you using this as an opportunity to pimp Apple products? <laughs> Fine. You know, it could be an Android watch. <laughs> uh, the... And maybe we'll end with this because I know our time our time's running out. But like I gotta say for a second, how the fuck like what what kind of a scholar we have here, man? You we're just rattling off questions. You're like an expert. We rarely have experts on this show. <laughs> like, oh, this is like a, <laughs> um, Thank you for lowering uh, the uh, the bar and allowing me on. <laughs> well, I mean, I can't like we've never really done something like this where we just rattle off questions the whole where time. We, yeah, yeah. We never just rattle off questions the whole time. I think it's just like you're you're you're. Uh, satisfying our thirst for knowledge and hopefully our listeners too. Um, at the ethical problems that come along with knowing, for instance, that you have increased predictive power. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with those? Like, what are the main ethical problems? Like, obviously, the hugest ethical problem from somebody who comes from an experimental tradition is you cannot do an intervention that causes an increase in suicidal. Uh, right. ideation or, or, or behavior or whatever. Um, but what are the ethical problems that you face in, in your research? Like, Yeah. The ethical piece is a really interesting one, I think. It, you know, we are in suicide, unlike most other areas of science, right? If you want to study, I think we've talked about this before the podcast. If you want to study disgust, you can disgust people. You can show yeah. them things, disgust them. If you want to study anxiety, you can expose people to tarantulas and see how anxious right. they if you want to study ants or stars or whatever it is, you can you can do that. For suicide, we can't ethically bring people into the lab and make them or try and induce suicidal thinking or, or suicidal behavior. And so as a result, we're in this sort of funky place where we're trying to understand something without ever having observed it. Uh, and I think this also has led to our lack of progress in this area where you know people are throwing out ideas about why they think people are suicidal without ever having observed a suicidal person, you know, while they're suicidal. With advanced in technology we can now you know use machine learning on medical records we can use apple watches uh, <laughs> smartphones biosensors to try and track people as we get better at identifying high-risk periods what do we do when do we yeah. intervene uh if we have a model that says this person now has a high probability of making a suicide attempt in the next month shouldn't we intervene of course we should intervene but the positive predictive value of a model is only about 4%. So 96 times out of 100, it's going to be a false positive. Mm. Maybe we shouldn't intervene. Maybe there's a harm to telling a person that they are at risk for suicide attempts. You are really, just the kind of right, person. Yeah. When really they're not. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 I don't know. You know, right now our approach is let's try and get better at predicting. And we don't think we're yet at a point where we should be acting on what we're doing because we have such inaccuracy in our models. As we get better and better, though, isn't you know at, what, at some point there becomes uh, a situation where we have an ethical obligation to act. We actually just hosted uh, or co-hosted with NIMH a meeting here at Harvard to address exactly this to say what are the ethics of doing digital monitoring with high-risk subjects, people who are thinking about suicide, using drugs, using alcohol. Uh, and we had bioethicists and, and psychiatrists and uh, lawyers and, and researchers to say, you know, if some if we're tracking someone with a smartphone and they say 10 out of 10, I'm going to kill myself today. And we have a GPS tracker on their phone. We know where they are. Shouldn't we intervene? On one hand, yes, of course we should. 
On the other hand, about 5% of our responses, people say 10 out of 10, I'm going to kill myself, but they don't. Hmm. So we don't want to be sending ambulances to people's school or their home and, or their Liars. Work. Liars. Well, not, <laughs> no, <I'm just> playing. <laughs> some people walk around with a high level of suicidal thinking, but yeah. they're not going to act on it. And so, you know, ethically, our position is we should do a really good job of consenting people and letting them know exactly what they're agreeing to, how we're going to use their data, how we're not going to use their data, what we're going to do in terms of intervention or not, and just be very clear with them as they go. And if we think a person's above a certain threshold, we'll tell them ahead of time, we once we feel some obligation to do something, we will take steps to try and keep you safe, which could mean reaching out to you. It could mean trying to get you into to, to see a clinician at the local hospital and so on. But it is, right, it, is I mean, it is tricky and it is, uh, to my mind, an, an iterative process. We do the best we can with our predictive models. As we get better, we've got to update and, and change our plan. Well, like the harsh reality is that that you could be in a position where somebody accuses you of negligence Absolutely. Um, because Absolutely. 5% is enough to have intervened and my, my child killed themselves. And you no no I'm sorry five percent about five percent of the responses we get a person is top of our scale saying I'm going to kill myself right now right right, right. but nobody has oh, so, okay okay yeah yeah the the sort of banal legal issues of somebody accusing you of having information that you didn't act on absolutely it's so nebulous right it's, yep. it's super um it's, it's it's an area that I would be just kind of freaked out about studying I mean we used to do. Right. Like when we were in grad school and we would do these like sad mood inductions in mm -hmm. Salovey's lab, mm -hmm. you know, we'd have to like debrief and give people information about counseling, you know, because we were afraid that just watching whatever terms of endearment was going to get them fucking right. like depressed. Listening um, to Russia under the Mongolian yeah. yoke at half speed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. On that note, we should probably wrap up. Yeah. Um, unless um, you have anything else, Dave. But thank you very much for for joining us on def i would say almost certainly the most somber vbw yeah yeah sorry i i want to i want to first say thank you but also just tell people that like, matt's an extremely hilarious hilarious person it's just that this is not a hilarious topic it's not a hilarious topic but i'm glad you guys covered it thank you thanks for, yeah. for featuring this topic on the on your podcast because as i said it is a somber one but one that because of that that often gets ignored so it's it's great that you're bringing attention to it really appreciate it and thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Thank you.